The following sermon audio is from Parkwood Kings Mountain in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. For more information, go to parkwoodkm.org. Well, good morning. Hope everybody is doing well. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I know there's a lot of, a lot of sickness. I think uh, Micah, our worship leader, got the flu this week, so I appreciate Isaiah and the guys jumping up in here and leading us this morning well. And uh, so we're beginning this morning a brand new series. And if you've been around Parkwood for any length of time, you know that when we start a new series, we'll probably, we might be here for a while. And so, so this, is, this is going to take us through Genesis. Now, the difference between what we're doing and what we normally do, normally as a congregation, when we pick a book of the Bible, we'll, we'll go through that book of the Bible expositionally, which one of the things that means is verse by verse. We're going to take a different approach to Genesis. We're going to look at the... The gospel in Genesis, that's what we're looking for. And so as you turn with me in your Bibles, we're only, we've only got one verse today. But as you'll see, that one verse is a lot there. And so as you turn that turn there, let's just ask ourselves the question, and may, maybe it's in your mind, maybe it's not. The gospel, in what you're saying in your mind, you're defining what that is right now in your mind, in Genesis. So what do they have to do with each other? How are they related? Are they related? So what does Genesis have to do with the gospel? Where is the good news? Where is the good news in Genesis when we look at on this page? And look, if you look at your sermon notes that's on the back of your info guide, the title of the message is God is the Gospel. What do, what do we mean by that? And ultimately, what is the ultimate good in the gospel? Is it someone we know or is it something we receive? So stand with me in reverence and honor to God's word. As we look at Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Lord, as we read this very short verse, this is the way that you chose in your sovereign providence and the inspiration of your holy word for us to begin this morning. When we open up your word, whether we have just come to the knowledge of Christ and you've just saved us, or whether we've been walking with you for 50 years, we return here this morning in the beginning. God. So Lord, we need your help. As we talked about last week, there's all kind of things vying for our attention and vying for fighting for God's status in our life. And all of us, Lord, whether we realize it or not, have been given something. And sometimes that can skew our understanding of why I am here. Who is God? What is the gospel? So, Lord, help us today as we look at your word to simply see who you are. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. So when you think about Genesis... What do you think about? 
what's sort of the first thing, just let it pop into your mind right now. Is it uh, confusing? Uh, maybe it's anti-science. As quite honestly, we've turned Genesis into a point of debate rather than seeing what Genesis is really about. I hope we can correct that in the weeks to come. Uh, maybe you just see it as a simple collection of stories of heroes. Awful lot of really cool people in Genesis that done a lot of things, some really good, some really bad. Genesis records it all for us. Maybe to you it's just a collection of fables. This is important for us for a lot of different reasons, but just to understand sort of the air that we breathe. Jesse Jackson tweeted this out January the 29th. All Abrahamic faiths are the same. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Is that true? In other words, if this is our framework, then when we read the book of Genesis, it's simply a book of origins of three religions that begin in the same place, and so what's the conclusion? Well, they end in the same place. Do you read Genesis as simply Jewish? Just a Jewish book written to God's people, Israel, and largely irrelevant to me personally? Or do we read it this morning as part of the Christian Bible with huge implications for our life? If the gospel of God is the good news, then it must be in Genesis. So I'm going to read this and I want to explain myself of why Genesis is important for us. And to some degree, the next few weeks is going to be introduction to our longer study. Genesis will provide us with a foundational view of all reality that enables us to see individual aspects and events in light of the whole. So what am I saying? I'm saying what we hope to accomplish in Genesis is, is that we would all be corrected and make sure that what we are seeing, we are seeing from a Christian worldview. In other words, your worldview, and I, I need to clean my worldview, my glasses are dirty. I meant to do that before the sun. I was like, oh, well, things are dirty. <laughs> That's why you look a little bit hazy out here. I was like, well, we got any smoke machines in here. Why does everybody look hazy? And uh, so... Your worldview is something that either you have adopted or you have been given with which you see all of reality. And so when you see it, you're seeing it. And to some degree, us as nice, comfortable Americans, and we talked about this a little bit last week, we wrap our children up in the blanket at Gaston Memorial, wherever your child was, and they put that little blue pacifier in their mouth, and they... And to some degree, we almost stick a pair of glasses on them at that, and it's called the American dream. And we view all of reality through that. We talked about that last week. So here's, I just want to give you a few things that I hope that we can glean as we go through Genesis. Just think about this as a pair of glasses then, and what Genesis wants us to learn, that God is sovereign. You're going to hear that a lot. I hope that word is sweet to your ears. Because it is in the author of Genesis. Versus the worldview of atheism, where man is sovereign. Man is his own God. The second thing, God is holy. Holy other than the universe. This is contrasted against 
pantheism that says all is God and God is all. The one, there's only one true God versus polytheism, which says there's multiple gods. We're going to see that in context this morning. That He is the creator of the universe versus secularism or naturalistic evolution that says all we need is time and chance. But not only this, we're going to discover a God who made a covenant. He made a covenant with His people, and He upholds that covenant. And that's contrasted distinctly versus deism that says, yeah, God might have made it, but He's not involved in it. What else? God made human beings in His image to manage the world on His behalf. This is distinctly than the pair of glasses that many of us are being given of hedonism, that this world exists for me to accumulate into a mass and to enjoy and to wring out all the pleasures I can get on this life because this is all there is. We're going to learn that God is not the source of evil, but created everything good so that His creatures could enjoy this physical world versus a heresy that come up called Gnosticism that says the, the physical world is bad and that we need to achieve some higher level of gnosis, of knowledge. And of course, they are the only ones that have it. But not only that, we're going to learn that the source of evil and brokenness in this world is human disobedience to God's command and resulted in a curse of this creation. And no more than we hear that Bad news, we are giving hope. Hope of a promised seed that would come and restore all things to the way it intended it to be. And so we get a picture of God's redemptive history that begins in Genesis. It's just what we hope to see. But even this morning, if, if you want to think about what we're going to talk about of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation and all of the characters that are in the Bible... And, and all of the books that are in the Bible and, and everything that is involved as a mosaic of little pictures that makes up a whole masterpiece. And what we begin to do as we back up is to begin to see something more clearly. And what I hope you see first is this picture of redemptive history that begins and it follows through every book of the Bible. But this morning, as we pan out what I want you to see, what... What I believe Genesis desires for us to see and discover is the good news of the living God. This is the big picture. It's not simply Genesis or simply Matthew or simply redemptive history. It is a picture that Genesis wants to, us to understand that begins with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. So we see immediately by this text of the way God's Word begins that the Bible presume, presumes God. It assumes it. It assumes His existence. That before anything was, there was God. And it uses the generic term Elohim to distinguish Him. And, so, and this would be similar to the English, English language. Which we can use the word God for the one true God. Or we hear other people use it for some of the other gods, such as Islam. But here it's used to distinguish a God, and this is going to be important over the next few weeks. 
Genesis distinguishing a God who lives, a God who communicates, in other words, a God who speaks, and a God who acts. This God does things. He's involved. But make no mistake, just your objectively look at Genesis 1-1 and ask yourself the question, who's the subject? <laughs> who's the subject? I'm, no, I'm not a grammar guy by any stress of imagination. You only have to ask my wife about that. And uh, she'll tell you my grammar's really bad. If there's anything wrong with the notes, it's probably me, you know. But God is the subject of Genesis. It doesn't take someone trained in grammar to see he's, he's the subject. And oftentimes in this book, we see even a plurality used which denotes not only the Trinity, but also majesty. So he is the subject in Psalms 90. Verse 2, Isaiah read it for us earlier. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is, this is simply backing up and re retelling what Genesis said, that God is the eternal living creator. In other words, in the way Jesus would describe himself, and you sing the, we were singing the word Yahweh, God's covenant name for himself. But here's how he would describe himself to his people. And it's said, who? Remember Moses? Who do I say that you are? He said, you tell him the I am sent you. The I am. He just is. He eternally is. He is the creator. And this is important this morning when we think about the context. So who was... Genesis originally written to. And though Genesis is not signed, the first five books of the Bible have been historically attributed to Moses. But who was he writing it to? This is important. So he's writing it to the Jewish people. And so we, we have to begin to understand then the way this was written and who it was originally given to was God's people who lived in a particular culture. And the culture they lived in was a polytheistic culture that worshipped a mass of these pagan gods. Many of which, even today, attributed some kind of form to some kind of nature. The god of the sun, the god of the seas, the god of fertility because they needed their plants to grow or they needed to have children. And on and on it goes. And so... In the middle of that context, and this is important because we live in a context, don't we, <laughs> that, that, that's telling us something about God and something about how we should think about God and ourselves. Well, so did they. And so God gives them this in the midst of a culture that, that worships all kinds of gods, and gods were fighting over who's in charge and some gods over this God and all this stuff to say, no, no, there is one God, and He, he, he is. He, he is the living God. And he eternally exists. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 and verse 8. Isaiah 46 and verse 8 begins this way. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the ends from the beginning. From ancient times to things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the living God. This is who He is. 
And this living God speaks. He communicates. And there's danger this morning that all of us face. It's when we come to God's Word, always seeking something about ourselves. Always wanting to know, get our problems fixed. Always wanting to know what it says to me and about me and for me. And if that is true, our reality of why when we pick up God's Word, we pick it up, then I'm saying this morning that it's possible you got on the wrong pair of glasses. And that we need to put on a new pair of glasses. There is a greater that begins in Genesis. And the greater is God. And this God not only lives, but He has made Himself known. In the beginning, God created. He created. So turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. You see, not Moses and God's people were not the only people who lived in a culture that worshipped many gods. So did Paul. This was the air he breathed. It was the culture that he lived in. Let's see how he engaged a polytheistic culture, a, God, a, a culture that believed in many gods. Acts 17, look with me at verse 23. It says, For, I, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Now he's talking to the people who, who are polytheists that worship many gods at this point. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. While therefore you, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything. So do you see how Paul here gets to the gospel. He gets to the gospel by beginning with a self-existent, absolutely independent, sovereign God who has revealed Himself to dependent creatures. That is us. This is God. This is you. So if you want to know something about you this morning, know that you are dependent. There is only one independent, and that is God. And He reveals this... He, he wants to reveal Himself, and He has through three ways in His text and all through Scripture. So what we want to do, and we're going to do this all through our study, is we're going to look at Genesis, but we're also going to look at the whole counsel of God's Word. What does this say about how God has revealed Himself? First, God has revealed Himself through creation. Through creation, Psalms 19 and verse 1. So turn with me, because this has got two, two things I want you to see in it. Psalms 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So what is that saying? It clearly, this is the clarity of Scripture. Creation itself declares the glory of God. It declares that this God that is has reacted. He has acted in time and space. He has created and He has created everything for His glory and our good. But not only that, look down with me in Psalms 19 to verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we see that God has not only made himself known through his creation, he's made himself known through his law. This is what he's given to even the original audience. He's given them creation and he's given them his law. His law it reveals his character. And listen, it reveals his will. God's will is given to you in his precepts. This is his preceptive will for you. And so don't miss Genesis this morning. It is God's will for God to be known for who he is. This is what he wants. He wants to be known, but he demands to be known for who he is, not for who we would like him to be. God is, and he has revealed himself through creation, and specifically and specially he's revealed himself through his word. Now turn with me to Hebrews. So God has been revealed in, in creation. He's re been revealed through his word. But he also made himself known through his son. Long ago at many times and in many ways, Hebrews 1 verse 1, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So God has made Himself known through His Son. The living God revealed through His Son was fully God. And think about this. This amazed me this week. And you could look, up, look it up later, just Matthew 1. Matthew begins his text with, with this in mind. So Matthew begins where we need to get to. Here's how Matthew begins. He opens the book of Matthew with, with this, an account of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. What is he doing? He says, Jesus marks the new beginning that will bring the new creation. And so here's what Matthew's saying. He said, listen, why am I starting with genealogies? Because if, if you don't see the big picture, you're not going to understand the story I'm fixing to tell you. You're not going to get it. You're going to miss it. You're going to think this is just the stories about Jesus doing a lot of good things, and you're going to miss the big picture of what's happening. John 1, 1 John agrees when he says, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is about Jesus. And they hear both of them saying, in the beginning, Jesus, because Jesus is God. So we see the good news that God eternally lives, that God has eternally revealed himself. He has made himself known. And then we see this. It's a good news. This living God is the God who created. He created. In the beginning, God created. Now again, flip with me to Acts. I want you to see Paul in action again. Awesome we have this recorded in Scripture because we're all going to ask the question, where do I start when I evangelize? Where do I start with somebody who doesn't wear the same pair of glasses that I do, doesn't see the world through the same... Here's Paul in Acts 14 again. Engaging a pagan culture. <laughs> and uh, they got themselves in a mess simply by doing something good when they healed somebody, healed somebody who was crippled. And the next thing you know, these polytheistic, idol-worshiping 
they started saying, oh my goodness, this is, this is Zeus, you know. We need to worship these guys, you know. And so they start trying to set Paul and Barnabas up as little gods and start to worship them. They tore their clothes. I was like, hold on a second. You got it all wrong. And so he uses this as an opportunity. So Acts 14 and verse 15. Here's how Paul responds. Men, why are you doing these things? We, are also, we also are men of, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain, th vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth, and all the sea, and all that is in them. Do you see where Paul began preaching? He began preaching in the beginning. In the beginning, God created everything. We're not gods. We're people just like you. And by the way, this got him stoned. So the audience, his original audience, and us today, we've got to see something very clearly here in Genesis that the creation account is principally about God. Not about creation. It's principally about God, not humankind. And here was my question for me today, this week. Am I willing to be God-centered as long as God is man-centered? Am I willing to see God and worship God and follow Him wherever He takes me as long as He has made this whole thing about me? Genesis is not going to allow us that. Genesis is theocentric. It is God-centered. It is not man-centered. For in this creation, God declares God is not the universe. He created the universe. It is subjugated to Him. God is not the grass. He's not this pallet on the wall. He created the trees that made that. He created the grass. He is not nature. He created nature. And we are not God. He created us. And so then, the implications of that is He is worthy of all of the worship, of all of His creation. So we exist to worship God, the God who lives, the God who has revealed Himself, the God who has created, and the God who reigns. He is the God who reigns. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Turn with me to Isaiah 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, verse 12. And 13, this is going to sound familiar. We're going to repeat this again. Someone else said this. Listen to me, old Jacob in Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hands laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. You see, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, had a worldview. They were given a worldview that centered on God as Lord and the overseer of all history. This is the Christian God. This is the God of the Bible. He is Lord. He is the overseer. Think about this. What is he saying? The God 
that stops the ocean and calls the stars, and neither one of them ever disobey him. Never once. He tells them to stand forth, they stand forth. He tells the sea to stop, it stops. And this picture is that it is God unfolding human history according to his plan to accomplish his, his ends. No ancient, this is important to, to our context, no ancient culture had this kind of theocentric concept of life and purpose. And so you, you feel that tension in our context, don't we? <laughs> there's, there's just not many, even some beliefs that call themselves Christian that has a theocentric, a very God-centered concept of life and purpose and a very God-centered view of God Himself. Listen to this quote. It's on the screen. God's purposes, therefore, extended from eternity into time, and His counsels reached from the invisible world to the visible. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the God who lives. The God who lives is the God who reigns. Two things I want you to see this morning in this, in this point. God's sovereign rule is essential to the gospel. It's essential to the gospel. Look at this text in Isaiah. No sovereign rule, no good news. No sovereign rule, no happiness. No sovereign rule, no peace. No peace. And so when Jesus stepped, in, stepped into time and space through His incarnation in Mark 1.14, he, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The rule and reign of God is here, and it came with Jesus Christ. God's universal rule is essential to the gospel, and God's universal sovereignty is grounded in His power as the Creator. We don't have to wonder if God is sovereign. Look to the heavens. He is sovereign. He created it all. They obey Him completely. He created them. He made everything. Listen to this quote. Creation also reveals the sovereignty of His scepter. For upon earth must His will be done as in heaven, and in all things in heaven and earth must finally be summed up in His Son. This is why Jesus taught us to pray the way we pray. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because He's sovereign. That's why we pray. This is the good news. The king, the king who is, is the king who revealed himself to you. He is now, this morning, as we open up his word, revealing himself to you. And he has created everything. He has given it as a demonstration of his glory and his power. And he sent his son. Turn with me to Psalms 24. Such a powerful passage. Oh, I love Psalms 24. Many brothers in, from the past, church fathers, see this as the ascension passage. 
I do as well. I just want us to think about this as we read it. Psalms 24. Let's read the first couple of verses to start with. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So pause. The very earth on which you walk is his. We walk on his dirt. We breathe his air. We love his children, his creatures whom he created. Look what it says. And those who dwell therein. He says, they're mine too. (laughs) Creation is mine. All of creation is mine. And those who dwell. He says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So the very, this is a triumphal psalm. This is an excited psalm. This is one of triumph. The picture is that someone who has conquered, who is coming back in. He's, he's, he's conquered. He has a kingdom. He's returning. And it sits on this. Everything is His. And then it asks us a question. That if you are a believer in the room, you should have asked at some point in your conversion as the Lord dealt with you in your sin. When we ask this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. And then there's a Selah, which is a good place for a break. As we ask the question, you see the problem. <laughs> Do you see a problem? The question, who's going to ascend the hill of God? Who's going up there to where he is? Who can approach him in worship? Who can ascribe to him the value that's due his name? Only those with clean hands and a pure heart. Only them. Only those who have not swear deceitfully, who do not lie. You see the problem. The God who lives and the God who reveals and the God who's created and the God is the God who reigns in His holiness. And hence the problem. So we begin to see it immediately. Who's going to ascend? So here's the good news this morning. Before creation, there was a covenant of redemption with the Father and the Son. And in the fullness of time, God, the Son, took unto Himself a completely human nature, and He lived. He lived what we lived. He understood the preceptive will of God, and He obeyed it completely. Never a bad thought. Never an impure heart. Never a false motivation. Always pure. And so it came the day when He presented Himself as the perfect, once-for-all high priest to intercede for you and for me. And not only that, He then stepped into the role of not only our perfect high priest, but also our once-for-all perfect sacrifice. And He made a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. 
And Isaiah said it pleased the Father to crush him. In other words, he accepted the sacrifice. How do we know? Because in three days he rose him from the dead. This is the victory, but it wasn't over, you see. Forty days later, he ascended. And I, I want you to think about this. Have you, have you ever thought about this? This is the first time that God the Son ascended to heaven as a man, a fully human. He ascended to his Father. Think about it. This is the picture. This is a picture. Just imagine with me that God the Son, this is the picture of a ruler who comes back in conquest and he's coming to the gate. He's coming to the gate. And he, we see in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come again. So God ascended as a man. We have this picture of him returning to his father. Fully God, fully man, accomplishing our redemption. Listen to what it, listen to what it says. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up. O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And can you imagine when God the Son walked up to the right hand of the Father and He sat down? This is the picture. This is God. God the Son, listen. Christ died to bring you to God. He died to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the good news this morning. In the beginning, God. And that God eternally sent His eternally living Son to take on flesh like us so that we might be redeemed. So do you see the ultimate good news of the gospel this morning? The ultimate good news of the gospel is God Himself. He's the good news. He's the gift. Not what He gives us. Not what He gives us. He is the gift. We know that we will enjoy Him then because we enjoy Him now. And so we end this introduction to Genesis in our study the way Revelation ends. Revelations 22.13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Lord, as we bow before you, we have labored not to make this long and arduous this morning, but simply to say, this is the God who lives. The God who eternally existed, Lord, that was you. 
We did not create you out of our minds. You created us. You created our minds. And you have revealed yourself to us. And give us the privilege of knowing you for who you are. So Lord, thank you that you are not like us. Thank you that you are not finite. Thank you, Lord, that you don't change. Thank you, Lord, that you're a sovereign, that you're in charge today, that you're in charge in America, you're in charge in Iraq, you're in charge of China. And so, Lord, you have called us to yourself. And Lord, as we have been talking for weeks and even months, you have given us a mission. To go to those places, beginning with where we live, and to declare this good news. There is a sovereign God who exists, who created all things, and he created you so that we can make much of him. So Lord, help us to take this simple message. But Lord, this morning as we stand to our feet, may you afresh reveal yourself to us. Not because we deserve it, but because you are an all-benevolent God who loves to pour your grace and mercy out on your children. You are our Father who is in heaven. So, Lord, may we love you. May we live for you. And right now, Lord, may we worship you. Stand with me as we worship the King.